So we'll be looking in Proverbs. We have arrived at what is a break in the middle of the second collection. So I, I wanted to go to page one of the handout. You'll see a reminder that we we have the introduction of the book of Proverbs is chapter one, verses one to seven. And there's a purpose statement and a thesis there. So this is a good place to remind of that. The purpose statement of the book, remember, is to hear wisdom and instruction. Remember, wisdom or chokmah is a knowledge of the good and the means to the good. And instruction or musar is the training that is given. And so that training is the, the Lord helping us to apply the wisdom. Oftentimes people will talk about how wisdom is knowledge applied, knowledge of what's good applied. And that is not the case. If you make wisdom into knowledge applied, you make wisdom into a work. Wisdom is in the mind. The application of it is a good work. Okay? And so instruction is the process of helping to train to use the wisdom to do good works. Now, the purpose statement carries on. It says, to see the words of understanding to grab the instruction, the Musar, of success. Now that word success, Haskell, is often translated as wisdom. And that's where part of the confusion comes from, is the translators. And so you have this idea of the success or the skilled application of things, Haskell, sometimes being translated wisdom. You can see how that would lead to confusion. So Chokmah and Haskell. And so we have wisdom and the training to help to use it and so that training in success or in accomplishing things in justice so determining the truth about a situation judgment making the right choice in a situation and equity or choosing that which is orderly and beautiful so that's what this book is is for is to help that happen now, if you don't want those things, then go someplace else. That's the goal here. And the thesis of the book is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So realizing and we, the fear of the Lord is a the theme of the book. It goes on throughout. And so there's the fear of the Lord in different ways. There's the fear of the Lord recognizing your need of salvation, and there's the fear of the Lord in terms of being concerned about discipline once you're already saved. So the fear of the Lord in terms of recognizing your need for salvation is, you know, there's, people don't have a justification for knowledge until the Lord regenerates and gives a recognition of the authority of the Word. People don't have a proper way of dealing with that. They have false understandings about how to know. They seek to put things above the Word of God and reject the Word of God. And so the Word of God restored within us allows us to have a beginning point, a stability from which to pursue more knowledge. And so from there, we have the consideration that on the other side of it, fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise chokmah and they despise musar. And so we have those two words used over and over again. And the first nine chapters had this chiasm where 
there was a breaking down of, of the thoughts about the value of wisdom. And so nine chapters focused on the young man and in a straightforward way talking about the value of wisdom, the value of parental instruction, the value of pursuing those things. And there are warnings against going to the fools and gangs of, of wicked men as an alternative to the family and also a warning about the harlot woman as opposed to the woman wisdom. And so there's a warning about that in the beginning. It lays out a lot of those characters and structures and themes. We get into collection two, chapter 10, and those are the Proverbs of Solomon. There are 375 of them. And when we get into the end of chapter 15, there's a dividing point. We have a change of subject that's occurring. So we're in the middle of collection two still, but we're at this sort of key point and that makes sense, right? You, you think about, you know, going forward from chapter 10 into part of chapter 22, and you're looking, we're about six chapters in, and so well, you expect to be about halfway through. So that's where we are, and there's a large structure to it, and this is the inflection point. So as we continue through here, the 375 Proverbs of Solomon in that collection too, you'll Go with me past that uh, outline. We're looking at chapter 15, verse 30, up through chapter 16, verse 15. So this is the introduction to the second half of the collection. The collection ends at 22.16, or at the end of 22.16. So the major structures we're about to read here, the first four verses are an introduction to this little set, and it focuses on care of the inner man. It focuses on self-rule, before the honor of ruling others. Then, verses 1 through 9 focus on the Lord's rule, and it's broken into two subunits. There's the Lord's rule in terms of his sovereignty over everything, his control of everything, and then there's the Lord's rule in terms of his moral law. And so those are the two pieces of the, law, the rule of the Lord's uh, there. And, and what you have is a, a major verse that sort of shows those two is verse 4. It's going to be broken into two uh, where it talks about God's sovereign rule and goals and then there's also the moral end in terms of the accountability that comes. Now then we get into chapter 16 verses 10 through 5 and there is a focus on the mediatorial king. And so that again has to do with the rules. So I have a great commentary set here on the book of Proverbs, and this is the beginning of, of volume two. Walt, Bruce Waltke broke it up, and he had his second volume begin here, and that's his judgment as well. This is sort of this breaking up of collection two. And he calls this section the, the dance of humanity, the Lord and his king. And I don't like dancing, so I didn't put that in my title. So please stand. Uh, let's read Proverbs 15.30 through... 1615. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones fat. The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. 
The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy, really from mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his his steps. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. And the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. Please be seated. Verses 30 through 33, again, the inner man and self-rule. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones healthy or fat. The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. We have here the light of the eyes, the idea of fat bones, the ear that hears, and none of these are talking about physical eyes, bones, or ears. So what we have, in terms of the light of the eyes, the light of the eyes is this you know, the same thing it means in anime. When anybody's eyes you know, glint in any sort of animation now, right, the, what's the effect? They're thinking about something, they figured something out, they've got some sort of focus on something else, they've got an idea, or they've been hypnotized, but not hypnotized. So what we have, the light of the eyes, it's not the physical eyes, it is the mind, the, the eye of the mind. So the light of the eyes, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. In other words, when you understand something, when you receive knowledge, it rejoices the heart. This is the platonic aha, the eureka. Right? There's the joy of, have you ever been searching out a matter and you haven't been able to figure it out and all of a sudden the Lord enlightens your mind and you see it and there is a joy in knowing the truth an increased awareness that is there, and there's like a bigness to the mind. There is an opening of the field, and it's glorious and also a little terrifying right? because you see what you did not see before, and you can't go back. That, when we have all sin removed from us, the glorified state will be a continuous stream of the glorious aha. There will be 
always and only an increasing openness of the mind of God, a, a enlightening of the dark cave, and a, a removal of blindness. And so what now seem like trees walking will appear as men. There will be this constancy of the higher definition, an increasing awareness of the details and of the big picture. And so that increasing awareness, that light of the eyes, brings joy to the heart. And that's because as we grow in the knowledge of the truth, not only is it pleasant in itself, but also as we know more of God, as we have more of the possession of the knowledge of God, we are aware that that is the good. And so we are aware of our increasing possession of it. And as we know that that is what is the good, we are made happier. And so it cannot be taken. It always increases. It increases with the sharing of it. And so those things, and you put them together, and they make it so you can derive new things. You have this ability to see how when you put together two pieces of knowledge, you can arrive at new conclusions. And so this way in which embedded within the new ones is this network effect of other conclusions that you're going to reach more easily. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Now, the, the thing that's the ordinary means for the light of the eyes is the good news. It's the gospel. It's a good report. The proclaiming, the preaching of the word is the means that makes the bones fat. Now, the bones, you've got bones all over your body. And I have fat bones. You don't have fat bones. I have fat bones. And when you have fat bones, they're fat all over. The thing about fat bones is they're all throughout your body. And so this idea that a good report makes the bones fat is this, the whole inner man, the, the whole inner man, from top to bottom, the whole inner man is made healthy, strong, fat, enlarged. So the word is the thing that brings light to the understanding. It's the ordinary means. And it makes the whole inner man healthy and it brings joy to the inner man. Now, the ear that hears the rebukes of life, well, here we have the good report, the good news, gospel. Then we have rebukes of life. What rebukes you? Law or gospel? Law. And so here we have the law and the gospel both being put forward as good. And so the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. There is now this enjoyment of the good life here, abiding amongst the wise. And then there's the enjoyment of the good life in the assembly that does not end. And so we have both the, the heavenly Jerusalem now and the heavenly Jerusalem that is continuing after the day of judgment when Christ returns. The ear that hears the rebukes of life. Now, do you see how the good report connects to the ear? Right? We, we think about this. Everybody who hears the good report, everybody who hears rebukes of life with the external ear will not abide among the wise. Everybody who hears the good news with the external ear will not have fat bones. I pity you. Now, at the same time, everyone who inwardly hears the good report Everyone who inwardly hears the rebukes of life does have it, right? So this inward hearing, this inward 
seeing this light of the eyes. And so that occurs, there's the definitive moment in terms of regeneration for the beginning of that that cannot be taken away. And then there's the progressive enlightening. And so this is true of both. Now, he who disdains instruction, Masar, despises his own soul. And if you hate instruction, you hate your own soul. If you, and we know this earlier on, we were told if you love instruction, you love your own soul. If you hate instruction, you hate your own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. So, you see how that shows us if you hate your own soul, you're going to hate instruction. But if you heed rebuke, you're going to get understanding. How do those make sense as an antithetical parallelism? Well, it makes sense because you go, ah, understanding is the good for the soul. Because if I love my soul... I'm going to heed rebuke. I'm going to heed instruction. I'm going to get understanding. That's good for my soul. So getting understanding versus not getting understanding. If you disdain instruction, if you hate discipline, the SAR, you're going, you hate your own soul because you don't want your soul to grow in understanding. You're removing the source of understanding, growth and understanding. Now the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Wait, 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 wait. Musar of Chokmah. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Okay, remember earlier on we said something about the fear of the Lord back at chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Which is it? Is it the beginning of knowledge? Or is it the instruction of wisdom? Well, it's both. It's the beginning of knowledge... It's the beginning of instruction. And here, it is also the instruction of wisdom because the fear of the Lord, once you fear the Lord, once you repent unto life, you continue to have the instruction from the Lord by fear of Him. You continue to grow in wisdom. You receive training in wisdom because God will make more apparent to you the suffering of wickedness. And he will show you the misery of sin more and more clearly and cause you to flee from it out of the fear of his chastisement, not the fear of damnation. You begin to be afraid that he will hand you over to sins that will not be a joy to you. So the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom if you disdain instruction, you despise your own soul. If you don't like the instruction of wisdom from the Lord, you don't fear the Lord. So we connect these things. There's this connecting here. So this is all, this is sort of a re-grabbing of the first nine chapters into a very condensed form to help us to prepare to go into the second part of the book. The second part of the book is still focused on young men or men who are in adulthood but aren't necessarily in leadership. And it's now prompting you to think about ruling other people in an increasing way. So we're going to have this idea of kingship and how to deal with kings. That doesn't assume you're the king. Later on, there's assumptions that the audience is the king. This one is assuming you have to deal with kings and you might become a king. This is wisdom for kings to be. 
The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. Now, I, that's a good translation. I think there's a better, more clear translation. Okay, Before honor is self-control, self-government. Now, the word anva is a word that can be translated humility. And it normally actually is in the Bible. In other Hebrew texts, it's frequently used to reference self-control. And the, the connection is sort of this, that humility or being brought low is a sort of scourging. And when you're brought low, there's this opportunity for you to learn to govern yourself. Now, later on, there's a word pride, and that word pride is sort of like tall or made high. Okay, So the low and high is a part of the literary device here, the, the comparing. So the being brought low in order to learn how to be high without being proud. So before honor is this lowness in preparation for being raised in honor. Now, um, the word honor, just this is fun, is the word kabod, you know, ikabod, if you're familiar with the name, that the glorious departed from us, so this is honor, kabod, okay? So, self-control is the thing that comes before honor. And that's what we're also supposed to look for. When you look for the qualifications for officers, there's this idea that people can rule well in a lower station before they're able to move up. And so the idea is you govern well, you're then able to rule a household, you govern a household well, you're then able to enter public office in the church and in the state. And so you're looking for evidence of those along the way. And so then now we get into the the rule of the Lord in terms of his direct rule. And so verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 16. So let's look at that. The preparations or the, the plans of the heart. The better Plans is a better translation. The plans of the heart belong to man. Now, notice heart is something that gets used again. So we saw heart up at verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Leb. And then we have the heart coming up again. And so there's lots of different terms here for the inner man, right? The light of the eyes, the heart, the, the fat bones, the, the hearing with the inner ear, not with the external ear. Um, the instruction of wisdom that's occurring internally. And so the heart again. So we have, we have this, the inner man is the focus here. But now there's this idea of ruling the inner man, getting the inner man in order in order to then receive honor. We look at the, the rule of God in governing history. It's the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Okay, so you can write this speech as many times as you want, and you can practice it as many times as you want, but what you actually say on the spot might not be what you planned. I'm sure nobody's ever had that. My preparations always go exactly as planned. I've never gone on course, off course in a sermon. Verse 9 is this is a chiasm, okay? Verse 9 shows you the other end of the extreme of the chiasm. A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. See how obviously connected those are? Words, steps, the planning is in both. Okay? So there's this internal planning, and then God controls what actually comes out. And so this idea that you need to humble yourself, you need to realize God controls what happens to you, even the things that are really close out. Okay, so your own words and your own actions. And it controls your heart too. But this idea that you need to realize that 
You can think as highly of yourself as you want, and you can plan for your own glorious action. But, God will control what happens. And that's why James tells us to not say, I'll go to such and such a place and trade and make a profit, but rather to say, if the Lord wills, I will go to such and such a place and make a profit. The preparations, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So we have this verses 1 through 4a are God's sovereignty, and there's this idea that there's a human responsibility to remember the sovereignty of God. Verses 4b through 7 are going to talk about the Lord's rule in his law and our accountability under that law. So one is about remember to think in such a way that you recognize God's sovereignty, and the other one is remember to think that God tells you what's good. So, verse 1, planning does not provide certainty that you will have the right words. Verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Now, later on, we're going to have this, this chapter uh, 16, verse 11 says, honest weights and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. Okay, so honest scales and weights. So, real quick question for you. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Which scale do you think works better? Our own spirit judging our own actions, or God judging our spirit? And do you think God, God's sort of like the department of weights and measures. He comes by and he says, your scale is broken. Go to hell. Unless Christ paid for your sins. Right? So all of us, all of our measures of what's right and what's wrong are wrong. The question is, how wrong? Right? Like, you know, you put gas in a car, and if you're off by like a tenth of a gallon, after the thing takes 20 gallons to fill it, right, you're defrauding the person. But we're like charging people 40 gallons, and it's like, I put 10 gallons in the car. Right? That's how off our judgments are. We are so, especially when judging ourselves, we always go, what I've done is good. I mean, how many times have you gotten into an argument defending yourself about what you did being right, and then afterwards you calm down and you go, yeah, I was wrong. But those are the most obvious times. Those are the most obvious times when we, upon quick reflection after the fact, go, yeah, I was wrong. How many of them don't get caught? How many times are our weights and measures in our own minds about what we've done, whether they're just or not, off? Right, so that realization that we need knowledge from God. And so there's a great joy in the light of the eyes that rejoices the heart. So coming to a greater knowledge is a deep joy. And it also makes it so it's much easier for us to see that our scale is off. And so then our scale gets fixed, 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 fixed. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Right? Everybody always does what they think is best. If I didn't think it was best, I wouldn't have done it. If I didn't think it was true, I wouldn't think it, right? These are the things that happen. So we always pick what we think is best. And we're wrong. And the Lord weighs our spirit. You know, your obligation when you sit and hear preaching is to test the spirit. Whose spirit are you testing? Mine. That's your weighing machine, is your own spirit. And unless you use the word of God to judge what my spirit is saying to your spirit, your judgment will be terrible. And unless I teach you what the Word of God says, what I teach you will be terrible. 
And so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to constantly look back to the measure that God gave to us, the Word of God, and we are to test what I say and what you think, or if you're teaching, what you say. And if we are going through that, we test it by the measuring rod of the Word of God. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. So, there are mechanisms that help us to avoid that sort of insanity of constantly measuring wrongly. One of them is, figure out how to commit your works to the Lord. So, try to live in such a way that you're living for His glory. So, in other words, focusing on the goal is a part of helping us to do that. And I love the literal Hebrew here. It's, roll your works to the Lord. It's like, it's like, it's like a... It's like a, a bale that's round that you're rolling to him or a log or something, some property that you're rolling over to him. Like, this is yours. You get this, right? So it's, it's roll your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established, right? If you have plans of what you want to do, if you commit your works to the Lord, then the Lord will establish it. That's how you don't work in vain. That's how you build things that last is by committing them to the glory of God. If you're not doing things to the glory of God, the best hope you have is that somebody who is working to the glory of God takes possession of your stuff and uses it for the glory of God. That's the only way your stuff will last. So, and then it's not really lasting as yours. It's just lasting as their plunder. And so, if you want what you do to be established, commit your works to the Lord. And then what you're planning to do will be established. And so, there's this connection between... God causes things. He controls things. And if you want the things that you do to have any meaning, use, value, then you need to commit them to God and pursue His glory. And the result will be that those things do glorify Him if you have the knowledge of God and apply that knowledge in pursuit of the goal. The result will be lasting work. The Lord has made all for Himself. This is touching back. This looks backward. The Lord has made all for himself. Everything he's made, he's made for him. You think it's for you, it's not for you, it's for him. God made everything for himself. And the great thing about Solomon is that Solomon doesn't care what you think. And so he ends the sentence with, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. God made the wicked for the purpose of their judgment. God made the wicked for the purpose of their judgment. And so that right there, that is supralapsarianism. God makes people to be vessels of wrath, and in order to accomplish that goal, he predestines their evil works. Their evil works serve the purpose of making it just when God punishes them. That's the God of the Bible. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom. How is that for himself? It's for the purpose of showing his attribute of justice. Because he made us for him, not for us. What does it care about for him? He cares about us for him because we show his glory and we can know his glory. God has made everything for himself. Therefore, if you make your works for something other than God, your works will be vain. You want them to be useful? Devote them to God. He's also made us to be knowers of Him. And so think about the fact that He's designed us so that our purpose is to know Him, so that He can be glorified. And He makes it so that it rejoices our hearts when we know Him more. Now, 
Yes, even for the day of doom. Okay, we're moving into the the moral element here. The Lord's law and human accountability. Verse 5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. This is that proud word that is you know, lifted up in contrast to the humility. Um, literally, literally, it's like everyone tall in heart. Everyone tall in heart. And you see yourself as great. You see yourself as big and strong and powerful. Everyone tall in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, God doesn't just hate the wicked without them having any just cause for hatred. He predestines the evil works, including the pride, for the purpose of justly pouring out his wrath. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though they join forces, though they confederate together, though they go hand in hand, though they form covenant together and swear to resist the God of heaven as a battle line. They will not go unpunished. God will shatter their lines. He will tear apart their alliances. He will cause them to retreat and scatter and be blown away like the chaff. Now, we look around here and we go, there's lots of bad guys, and there seem to be very few of us. There are more with us than against us. The angels and the general assembly of the saints and the saints on earth. Okay, The Lord God Almighty is greater than great numbers. And the triune God defeats all of our enemies. He is better than armor or artillery or elephants against lines of infantry. There is nobody who is stronger than God. Every proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. And even if all the proud hearts join together and form an alliance, none of them will go unpunished. Now, at the same time, right, we all go, I'm proud. I'm wicked. Am I made for the day of doom? Will I go punished? Well, the, the word here for mercy is hesed, okay, which is often translated loving kindness, but mercy is a way better translation. So I'm glad that that's what we've got here, mercy. And it says in mercy, but it's got the, the Hebrew word may, which is just from. Okay, so it's, it's from mercy. So from a motive of mercy. So God, God cares about his justice, but guess, guess what else he also cares about? And guess what is more complex, and therefore further down the logical line? Mercy. From mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. God hates the wicked. God will not let the wicked go unpunished. And from mercy and truth, Atonement is a provided for iniquity. Notice how that requires a substitutionary punishment. That requires a substitutionary atonement. Motivated out of mercy and the giving of truth. The giving of truth for the purpose of glorifying himself because the truth shows his attributes. Every truth you know is some truth about God. And from mercy and truth, atonement is provided from iniquity for iniquity. So our wickedness, our iniquity, our pride has atonement motivated by the mercy of God. He sent Jesus Christ, though we deserve punishment, though we deserve punishment, he sent Jesus Christ to take punishment for us in our place, in our stead, as a substitute, the mediator, the mediatorial king. 
And it's interesting because we start to move into, after this section, the mediatorial king. From mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Huh. This is, you've received atonement, right? There's atonement that's been accomplished for you. And now the fear of the Lord in the context of not going to hell, but in the context of fearing his chastisement, in the context of having been forgiven by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So, the fear of the Lord leads to the removal of chastisement and leads to blessing and the reduction even of strife with your enemies. The interesting thing about your enemies is when you're at peace with them, that and if you're the good guys and you're at peace with your enemies, it's probably because you've subdued them. Like David. The American order is an interesting time in history. World War I, the American order retreated back to the United States because there was still a sense of, of the desire to not be a world empire. World War II is an establishment of a new order, the American economic system, the American dollar, uh, we become the guarantor of the trade lanes. Britain had previously been the guarantor of the trade lanes. We become the guarantor of the trade lanes. And the American order becomes not the order of mercantilism, but the order of free trade, that the number of transactions are the way of increasing worldwide wealth, and the world can become essentially a source of cheap labor for the support of the American order. And this was both something that was thought to be an economic improvement for the United States, but also it was thought that this would be the way of sort of paying people to not go Soviet. That you can enter into the protection net, you can receive the trade lanes, and you can have access to the markets if you will not join with the Soviets. And so that plan, that, that world order was an effort after World War II to establish a system of peace rather than an imperial system with tribute payments. And so what we're seeing right now is sort of the, the retreating of the American order. It ceased to really be in, even like an imperial perspective, the American interest to seek to retain a large worldwide system after the Soviet Union fell. And so since then, presidents have continued to promise to reduce worldwide commitments. And there's been a sort of gradual declining of them. And so there's this American perspective of the decline of the value of overseas military commitments. And I understand from my teaching in the past, I think the Bible teaches a limited military, not having a large standing army. And so this idea of a citizen soldiery and the, and the declining back, we're not doing that in America because of the widespread acceptance of biblical foreign policy. Right, the, the change is coming from something else. Um, but my point is that this decline of the American order, right, we're seeing that, and we've seen, we've seen the American order, which was established by subduing the enemies, subduing the Nazis, subduing the Japanese, subduing the Italians, and then putting in check the Soviet bloc. That peace with the enemies is often through that subduing. And there's the most recent and large-scale example of it.
when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I'm not saying that the Lord is pleased with everything the United States has done. I'm simply trying to give you an example so you can think about the idea that peace against your enemies, if you are the righteous one, is normally through the subduing. And again, you can go to King David and his subduing of the enemies around Israel as the biblical example of that. Verse 8. Better, and this is a conclusion. Verses 8 and 9 are really the conclusion of this section. So verses 1 through 7 is a little chiasm, and you've got this little conclusion section here, and it leads into the mediatorial king section in verses 10 through 15. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So what we have there is a reminder of the points that were above, and they are um, the moral order and then the sovereign order, which is the reverse of the two sections above. The previous one was the sovereign order and the moral order, and then we have the sovereign order. Uh, the moral order and the sovereign order. That's what 8 and 9 do. So that's the conclusion set. So it's better to have a few possessions and to have righteousness than to have vast revenues without justice. So think about that for a second. Justice with a little bit or no justice and vast revenues. Vast revenues is sort of a multiplying way of talking about this, right? You think about you can have a little bit or you can have a lot of stuff. Okay? You can have a little bit or you can have a lot of revenues. But you, you have to have a lot, a lot to have vast revenues. Are you thinking about this? You have a million dollars. Great. Amazing. That's amazing. What would your revenues be on that? You, you go and you passively invest the thing and you go, I'm expecting a 5 to 10% annualized return on a regular basis. I'll get fifty to $100,000 out of this million dollars on an annualized basis. Wow. Okay, so what would a little bit be? Like, what would a little bit of money be? If you go, I have a little bit, but I have justice. Like, you go, well, maybe the costs for, like, keeping things rolling in my household for a month. So, I don't know, three grand, four grand, five grand, whatever. Whatever your savings are. Here's a little bit. You got something. It's not nothing. It's a little bit. And then, on the other side, you go, what would vast possessions be? I don't know. Let's just pretend a million dollars is vast. Okay? What would vast revenues be? Let's say that's a million dollars. What kind of savings does it take? have a million dollars of revenues well like 10 to 20 million dollars right so better to have a little bit of possession with justice than vast revenues with injustice and so this perspective for yourself and for your household and anything you rule the decline of any order ultimately comes because of moral reasons what does that, what's the philosophy of that order? The philosophy of an order, whether it's your self-rule, household rule, the church, or the state, if the philosophy, the moral order of that institution is what the Word of God teaches, it will provide stability. If it is something else, it will provide instability. It will collapse on itself. And the degree to which any institution runs from the Word of God is the degree to which it accelerates its own decay. Better a little with righteousness because at least what you build with that little will be established than great revenues without justice. Because that will not be established. It will be a big waste. Multi-billion dollar waste. 
a multi-trillion dollar waste. Trillion lost its meaning when they started printing trillions of dollars every time they felt like it. What happened to you? I used to think trillion was a lot. Now, verse 15. Oh, verse 9, sorry. A man's hearts plan his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we're reminded again, you pick stuff for what you're going to do, but God controls what happens to you. God even controls what you do. And so make sure to direct your path towards God. Make sure to roll your works to God. Devote them to him. Sacrifice them to him. And they will be established. So now the mediatorial king. Here's the work of the mediatorial king. And you know, the mediatorial king is uh, the one, the human, who has the most established work. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. And the light of the king's face is life. And his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. So this is talking about kings generally, but all kings point to Christ. He's the king of kings. And the way it talks about a king here is sort of an idealized version, which also points us to the mediatorial king. So divination is on the lips of the king. Right? The idea of divine oracles, accurate predictions of the future, the right judgments. I do not know very many politicians who make right judgments or good predictions about the future. Is this wrong? This is establishing for us a standard. Kings ought to be men who speak truth and predict well. And the Messiah king is a prophet and a king. And on his lips are the words of God. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Solomon, we have the example of Solomon with the splitting of the baby solution, right? As a way of trying to figure out who was really guilty, who, who had a right claim to the child. And so kings have to be able to try to figure things out, to find out secrets, to determine right judgments, to proclaim here is the right principle, but then to also do fact-finding effectively and to be able to try to make plans based upon those facts and seek to work in a way that accords with reality. The law of God provides all those things. The law of God provides all of those things. Now, his mouth must not transgress in judgment. He must not say that something that's actually good is evil or evil good, and he must not wrongly say that somebody did something when they didn't. He used a right evidentiary base. And so the moral order involving human kings involves the right usage of the law of God, the right usage of process, and this concern to study and have a depth of wisdom. And a part of that involves a concern for making sure that fields are harvested and that trade is righteous. Right? A, a good king is devoted to the harvest. A good king is concerned about honest weights and scales. All the weights in the bag are his work, are the Lord's work. And so a good king must be concerned about what God says and therefore must be concerned to punish fraud 
And I want you to imagine two different societies. One society has officers of the king going around checking everybody's weights and measures all the time. And whenever they're off, regardless of whether they betrayed anybody or defrauded anybody, they receive some sort of fine. So you can be searched whenever the king wants, and you can be punished whenever the king finds what you're doing and have, you, know, you have a, a registered weight and measure, and that registered weight and measure is off. The other side of this is the king only involves himself if someone makes a charge of defrauding you, and then there's a trial, and there's significant punishment for theft. Which society has more interference and less freedom? And at the same time, because of the constant interference of government, is less likely to actually get justice for anybody. If the focus is the government only deals with particular harms when there's an accuser, the government's role is dramatically reduced and the people who are actually harmed enough to care are way more likely to get justice. That's the order that God establishes. Punish criminals. Don't go inspect everybody. The go inspect everybody model is not the Bible's model. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work or his concern. God knows, and guess what? If the king doesn't know, guess who's going to punish the guy with false weights and measures? God. The king can't go into everybody's knapsack and figure out what their weights or measures are calibrated for. It's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. If the king uses dishonest weights and scales for collecting taxes, he might get more revenues, but that is not going to establish righteousness in the land. And if you have a fiat currency and you've abandoned the gold standard and don't pay anybody the gold that they were promised and then just keep printing dollars, that would also probably be false weights and measures and would not help to establish righteousness in the land. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. In general, people in authority have a hard time finding people who will give them good counsel. And when somebody is willing to speak truth and willing to speak it with clarity and boldness and at the same time honor, there is a refreshing sense that, ah, not a flatterer. And so, those, the higher in authority you get, the more valuable a truth teller is unless you are trying to impose injustice. And then the truth is treason. So, if you are in authority and you want what is right, truth tellers are a delight. And the authority loves the one who speaks what is right. That's true in witness bearing, that's true in advising, that's true in criticizing the king. Now, on the other side of this, this should not give you an excuse to look at people in authority and just think, great, I can just make them angry without caring. Immediately after this, saying that truth-tellers are a delight to the king, it says, as messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. Now, here's how we all think about that. We hear that and we go, the person in authority gets mad, and the wise person appeases it. And we think the appeasing action is handling, right? We think that the appeasing action is handling. And so we think, 
the one in authority is not as wise as the one under authority, and this is the how to as the smarter one, the wiser one under authority, which this is how all of you women think of yourselves, right? So the idea that if you're under authority and you've got this guy you've got to handle, right? This is a temptation in every marriage to think that way. And this idea that you have to handle the wrath of the one in authority. A messenger of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. Now, that's a temptation. That's a temptation if, I, if you're employed by somebody. I've worked for people and had to have that, like, oh, I think better of myself than the person I'm working for or whatever, right, that, that temptation. But here's what this is calling us to do. Not to do that, but instead to think, the person in authority, I need to speak the truth to them and not be afraid to speak the truth because they're in authority. That will gain me favor in the long run. At the same time, the king's wrath is a serious matter. We're not going to pretend like it doesn't matter. If your boss is mad at you, it's a problem. So, if that's the case, you need to speak truth. You need to be aware that you can cause wrath in the midst of that. And if you're wise, you will figure out how to wisely appease it. Now, we've all been in a position where people have told us the truth and it made us mad. Is the king, is the one in authority inferior to us because they get mad at truth sometimes? No, we are weak. All of us are weak. And so we sometimes get mad at truth. And then when that's appeased and we can think more clearly, we can go back and see that our ways were not pure. And so the king's wrath matters. Learning to appease other people who are in authority matters. And that's a part of wisdom, is learning how to appease wrath, to subdue it. A soft word turns away wrath. Now, in the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is in the cloud. His favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. The light of the king's face is life. Remember the first verse we looked at? The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Here's the close of the whole unit. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. The light of the king's face light of the king's face is life. Now is that true of any king other than Christ? No. In a little sense it can be. You can go, there's life producing elements like the fact that you're not going to be killed by the king if he favors you. That helps to prolong life. And at the same time, if the, if the king favors you, the light of his face is life in that he can give things that are conducive to life, helpful in life, will improve your life Authorities have resources to give. And so parents and children, husband and wife, pastors and congregants, employers, employees, magistrates and citizens, the one in authority has powers that can be used for the good of the one under authority. And cause bringing the favor of the authority by seeking to speak truth and serve well and have right weights and measures, all of these things... Bring life to yourself. Does that remind you of the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given to you. There is life in the favor of the one of authority. And his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. The favor of people in authority brings resources to pour out in blessing on the one under authority. And so the general rule, the way of prosperity, the way of blessing is to honor the authority. And the most important authority to honor is God and the Messiah King. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He controls the literal clouds and their latter rain. 
He can give as much as he pleases, and he can take it away. And when he gives you life, he will not take it away. If the Lord God Almighty favors you, he gives you the wisdom, the knowledge of him, and it will last, and it will grow, and you will rejoice in your heart. Comments, questions, objections from voting members and those with speaking rights. Okay. For those of you who will not be participating in the Lord's Supper, grace to you and peace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you